Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. Alexis Rockley. She's the author of the book, Find Your Fuck Yeah, Stop Censoring Who You Are and Discover What You Really Want. She's the founder of the blog, How to Like Being Alive, and the host of the podcast, Call Me When You Get This, which will leave you short, inspiring, and science-based voicemails in your podcast inbox. And she's also a writer speaker, creative strategist, and this lady's like a a human pep talk. You just get her going and you start to feel inspired. So I cannot wait to pick her brain about what is wrong with schools today, how you can get your teenager motivated and inspired, even if they're in a terrible school and She has studied positive psychology with Dr. Martin Seligman, the founder of positive psychology. So she's not just completely making this shit up. She actually knows what she's talking about. Really, really excited to get her on the show today and talk about all that and more. Alexis, thank you so much for coming on. The book is Find Your Fuck. Yeah, it seems to me like it's very much for 20-something people, but a lot of stuff in here for teenagers is like kind of getting the cheat codes to the test before the class begins a little bit. It's written in such a hip and approachable way for young people that I was compelled to reach out to you and try to bring you on the podcast because I really think that A, just parents could just get a copy of this and just kind of leave it around the house and their kids will pick it up and be interested. But B, parents could read this themselves and get a lot of ideas for things to do, exercises to do with teenagers, conversations to have with their teenagers, uh, to just get them thinking about this stuff so that they can maybe save a little bit of time in their 20s when they're figuring out what the fuck they want to do. So uh, that being said, what the fuck is a fuck yeah? (laughs) And, And who the fuck are you? Hmm. Great question. Well, I'll start with who I am and then I'll explain what fuck yeah is. So I'm Alexis Rockley. I am, I'm a positive psychology coach, a career coach specifically, and an author, as you know, and a speaker. And I spend my life now teaching people fundamental basic stuff of psychology, but how to apply it to their daily lives in everyday what I call like emoji language. So millennial language. So (laughs) speaking it, not like a scientist because I'm not a scientist. I am a nerd who loves research and who after having an existential crisis that spurred the writing of this book, I ended up going back to school to get my specialization in positive psychology from UPenn. So I, I do a lot of new things. And it's funny because if you told me like 
three and a half years ago that this would be my job, I would have laughed in your face because I was sure I was going to be doing something else. And I think that is a classic sign of being a young person is this absolute sincerity when you think you know what you want that has this undercurrent of insecurity. And I feel like the older I get, the more confident I am that I know nothing about the world and the better I feel about that. So it's almost like a flip-flop. When I started researching for this book, I didn't know that I was a book was going to come out of it. I was just getting more and more obsessed with the psychology and neuroscience behind happiness because I had started out reading a lot of self-help books. And while some of them made me feel good while I was reading them, when they were over, I felt like I had been abandoned by my best friend. And I was like, what the hell do I do with my life now? I have no strategies. You made me feel good. And then you disappeared. What? So I was pissed off that the self-help advice was like, common sense and cheerful and without any research backing it up that I could find. It was just sort of like a pep talk, which is great. Some of us need that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, I know there are people who devote their lives to studying the brain and happiness and purpose. And so I started reading and reading and reading and getting more obsessed. And in the process, I was finding there were tools that would help me deal with my massive amounts of existential dread and constant anxiety and stress I was carrying from work because I had climbed the corporate ladder to the very tippity top. At 28, I was managing like 55, $56 million in annual business a year for a huge retail giant. I was leading massive teams of people. My job was badass and sexy on paper. And I was stressed the hell out because I had not established any boundaries between my own identity and my job. So while I'm going through this existential crisis, I find this science really helpful. I start applying it to my life. I ultimately leave my career as a retail fancy pants executive and start trying to get my sanity back. Again, no fault of the job I was at, just a side effect of not having boundaries. And as I'm applying this science, I'm finding, oh, there's so many things that add up to happiness that I can't quite find the right word for it. And so when I was describing this state of being, this feeling of having a clear sense of purpose without necessarily needing all the answers and having a excitement to wake up and work and get going with my day and feeling of hope and motivation and knowing which problems were the problems that were worth solving, that complicated ball of things needed a word and I couldn't find it. Because the eye roller in me was like, well, I can't call it purpose because, ugh. Like, passion, that sounds passion, so overdone. Yeah. Find your calling, like, ugh. <laughs> and I just couldn't give it those words. And it's like, okay, is it joy? Well, ew. Like, it sounds like a precious <laughs> moments figurine or something. It just feels false and too loaded. And so I made a fake word when I was writing these blog posts, which eventually became manuscripts, which eventually became this book. And the stand-in word was fuck yeah, because it was that feeling of fuck yes. Like I'm awake, I'm alive, I care. And it was always meant to just be this sort of false fill-in word when you don't have the words. And then I realized that I couldn't, there wasn't a word for it, at least in English that I knew of. And so I was like, well, I'm going to ball it all up in this word. Nothing better than that. Yeah. yeah, So fuck yeah. To clarify that the cover of the book, it looks like I'm telling teenagers how they can find their purpose in life. And it's perfectly fine if young people pick it up for that reason. But the reality is that I cannot tell anyone the answers and no book on earth has the answers for them. But there is a way to ask yourself better questions and to better understand what's going on in your brain. And so fuck yeah is this combination of 
having a sense of purpose without needing all of those answers and clarity and motivation that we're all looking for, but it's outside of that um, passion, purpose, calling floaty world that we hear about constantly that is basically a trick to get us to buy stuff. So one thing you point out in this book that I thought was really cool is that ever since we've been four years old, we get rewarded by adults for having a, a confident answer to the question of what do you want to be when you grow up? And, uh, you know, if you can just spout out, like, oh, I want to be a fireman. Oh, I want to be a doctor. Oh, I want to be a cheerleader. Whatever it is, you get rewarded for that by adults. Oh, it's great. How, how are we supposed to know, right? How do we even know when we're in our 20s? How do we even know? It changes all the time, right? So we need to stop doing that to kids. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really, it seemed like an innocent good idea at first because you're, yeah. you're sort of getting kids thinking about, you're, you think you're helping them dream, right? Yeah, you're getting right. them excited about, you know, their role models or whatever. But the yes, problem you can, is- You can be that. Yeah, yeah. You can be anything you want to be. And that's a wonderful thing to say to all of us. And in fact, I'm one of like- that generation that had parents saying that to me as a kid, that's a gift and not all children grow up that way. But I think that it's really detrimental for parents to overemphasize the idea of what you want to be when you grow up, because it leaves this subconscious impression that stays in a child's brain as they age, that they will be rewarded immediately for saying an answer. And they will work very hard to convince themselves that their answer is in fact true. And it's this really weird thing about the human brain where we will generalize an explanation for a reason for something before we really know if that's the reason. And this is something that happens with kids and teenagers. We start seeing the rewards of explaining, of saying to an adult, this is what I want to be. This is who I am. These are the labels I've assigned to myself. This is what I'm going to do with my life. And then we spend a long time struggling internally, trying to convince ourselves privately that that is in fact what we want when we truly have no idea. And it would be much better if the adults around us helped us learn earlier. They also have no idea what they're doing or yeah. what they want and that it's no, okay to not have all the answers, but that yeah. they will always be there for us. Like those adults will not have the solutions. They, because when you're in school, especially in high school in the United States, you are taught that adults and teachers have all the answers. Ergo, when you are an adult, or if you're a teacher, you will have all the answers. It's like a default That's thing. part of being grown up, right? It's you got to know what you're talking about. Yes, I mean, I vividly <laughs> remember being 17 and thinking when I'm 25, that's like, adulthood. That's when yeah, I'm going to have my shit figured right. out. Like <laughs> I'm sure. And then I remember being like 26 and laughing going, this is hysterical. Who is no I? idea. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm in my thirties and I'm like, my older me is going to laugh at 30 year old me or 33 year old me and be like, really? It was cute that you thought you had it figured out. I had no idea. Yeah. So anyways, I, I do feel really strongly about that. I think a better question to ask small children to help them dream is like, who are you inspired by or like who do you look up to or who do you like like when you're talking about like heroes and things and then separately what do you want to do next so like if you change it from what do you want to be when you grow up to what do you want to try next it, it's starting to facilitate a conversation around like things will change more regularly and at some point they're going to have to like start thinking about 
fields of study and jobs, and they're going to realize that they're going to have to pick up. You can't escape that. That's part of living in capitalism, and it's fine. But asking the question differently might help um, teenagers not spend so much time trying to have answers and believe in them confidently because they're going to end up spending the next 20 years unraveling those answers that they had and going, oh, I know nothing. And that's actually not so bad. There's also an implication that with the question, what are you going to be, that your job defines you and that whatever it is that you do is who you are. And by asking asking kids, you know, what do you want to be? It's like asking them who they want to be and just kind of forcing them to box themselves in a little bit when they answer that. You have written in this book on page 42 that you hate the movie E.T. Yes, I do. So, With my whole soul. Wow, that is, that's a lot, Alexis. Okay, mm, mm, um, mm-hmm. why is that, and um, what does that, what does that imply about how our brain decides what is true, and what is a fact? Well, this is one of those example stories in my life where my own brain surprised me, which has happened to me multiple times since beginning to study psychology. <laughs> I'm constantly like, "What? What's happening in there?" I have always hated the movie E.T. And for the longest time, I just, when people, when it would come up in random conversation, I would just say, you know, um, I don't know, it's a stupid movie and the alien's weird and I don't know why anyone likes it and it's overrated and blah, blah, blah. It's just dumb. It's dumb. I hate it. And (laughs) I always thought that it was just because it was stupid to me and I didn't like it. And at some point I had this conversation with my mom. It came up. I said the same thing I always say. And she was like, oh, no. Pumpkin, that's not why you hate that movie. You don't remember any of this? And I was like, what? No. And she said, well, when you were little, when we go to the allergist, you would be in the patient's room laying on your stomach with like 50 plus needle pricks down your spine and they always played E.T. And E.T. was always in the, the lobby and you were always, it was always there when we were there. And I was like, what? I don't remember this. And she was like, well, yeah. And this story came to mind when I was researching what happens in the brain when we explain something without really knowing why we're explaining it. So it's the thing I alluded to earlier. Essentially, the way that our brains remember stuff is they flag things with little emotional color codes. So if something is really, really emotionally relevant, like terrifying or wonderful or awe-inspiring, just an important memory, something loaded with emotion, positive or negative, our brains will flag that thing and then it'll file it away and it will store that memory in that file. And then over time, the more memories your brain loads in, it's a hoarder. So it's always trying to collect everything in your subconscious because your subconscious is running constantly in the background. It's very, very good at it. It's very efficient. It's called autopilot brain in my book because it's easier to think of that way. And it's constantly collecting this data, saving it for us. And then it has to compress stuff because there's way too much to remember, and we can only focus on 5% of what's going on in our brains at any time. It's only 5% is conscious. Around 95% is subconscious. So it has to squish stuff. And when it does, just like file compression, if it's over compressed, then when you reopen that file, it looks kind of pixelated. The photo's pixelated or the audio file is garbled. You know, it's that kind of thing where it does some minor damage to the, the file. 
So when you have an emotionally loaded memory, especially from a long time ago, your brain is going to save that, flag it. And then when you go back to revisit that memory, it will probably have erased most of the details. And all you will have is the shell of the memory and the vibe. And so my brain saved ET. It knew I saw ET. Shrink it. And then saved that was awful. It was irritating. And so boom, boom, boom. ET sucks. And I had no recollection of why I hated it because my brain had to shrink it because my mom was in a different mental state, different place and had a different brain, a different age. Um, when that experience happened for her, she remembered it differently. It wasn't emotionally loaded for her the way it was for little me when I was like six years old. So our brains do the very best it can. They can, it can to recall what's happening to save it. But a lot of times the stuff we remember isn't quite accurate and we make up explanations for those memories just so that we can survive and deal with the fact that we can't remember it all. (laughs) It creates limiting beliefs often and that's the the shocking part. Okay, so so walk me through that. Yeah, I mean, I hear the ET thing, but what other kinds of beliefs or ideas might get truncated that could kind of lead to limiting thought patterns or limiting beliefs if we aren't careful? Well, I think the best thing to understand about limiting beliefs, and I have to clarify this first because limiting beliefs are a popular expression used in self-help. And the unfortunate thing about the way that it's discussed in self-help books often is that limiting beliefs are these bad things that are in your brain and they're stopping you from having a good life. And if you don't get rid of them, then you will sabotage your own life. That's the gist. What Oh, yeah, you got to get rid of it. Yeah, you got to get rid of it. They're limiting. How awful. They're going to limit you. you (laughs) How terrible. Let's not do that. And it makes sense sense to villainize this part of, you know, this function of our brains. But limiting beliefs exist because our brains are extremely well evolved to protect us. And so a limiting belief is just something that your brain has decided is a fact based on personal experience, based on something really emotionally salient. So like something that was red flagged in your brain. And it's telling you to do or not do something based on that memory to protect you. So for example, if one of the examples I give in the book, if you uh, grew up with a parent who constantly uh, belittled and shamed fat bodies, so constantly made people who were larger than a particular size feel bad or disgust that body in a way that was shaming around you as a young person, even if you don't believe that personally, even if you believe that all bodies are beautiful and that no one has any right to police someone's size, you still were around that when you were a little kid. And that can create a belief that you have to protect yourself from getting hurt by someone who believes that bodies that are fat are not beautiful. So for example, you could be craving a burger and think, I really want to go get a burger right now. I'm hungry. I smell, I smell grilled onions floating through the air. It's usually like in and out for me when I'm driving down the road. Like, mm, that's, that smells real good. Um, <laughs> you could smell, you could smell these grilled onions. You're like, I want to go get this burger. And then, and then all of a sudden you're like, no, I can't, I can't have that. And at no point, this is instantaneous. At no point are you thinking to yourself, I can't have burgers because I'm not allowed to eat burgers because burgers make people fat and being fat is bad. None of that is happening consciously in your brain. You don't believe any of that. But there is an undercurrent of, I can't have that. 
And it's because there's a red flag tied to a parent telling you when you were young, this is unacceptable. This is shameful. This is bad. And even if you disagree with them, your brain wants to protect you from being shamed and rejected by that parent. And so it will attach weird beliefs to things that aren't accurate. And the only way to question limiting beliefs that are not accurate for us now is to just try to make them conscious. It's like how you breathe unconsciously all the time until someone says you're breathing and then you become aware that you're breathing and you're like, oh, how am I breathing? Is it normal? Am I doing it through my nose? How do I breathe? And it gets, you get very like, you can almost stifle your breathing because you're aware of it, right? It's the same thing with limiting beliefs. All we can do is ask ourselves questions to, to find out what we think we believe and just check in on ourselves to ask why. Now the example of like limiting beliefs and fat shaming is clearly a negative belief. Like thinking that you can't have a food because being fat is bad is a harmful thing to think, not just for yourself, but for others. That's not a a good way of thinking. But there is the reality that eating, you know, fast food every day of your life can cause health issues. And so it's very common for our brains to use a logical sounding explanation to defend a subconscious belief that isn't logical at all. So for example, if you are craving that burger, your brain tells you you can't have it, but you don't know why, you're just, I can't have that. Mm -hmm, Bad. Um, Your logical, if you need to explain it, it will often say, well, health food is, or, you know, junk food is very bad for you. And I should, I shouldn't do it because it's, it's not good for my body, but that's not the real reason in that case that you decided not to. So I am loving this insert you have on page 64, which is the things factory school taught me. And there's a list here that I love. The Pledge of Allegiance. F is for failure. Don't fail. This will be on the test. This is going on your permanent record. You have a permanent record. You know nothing and the adults in authority know everything. Ask for permission to speak, to go to the bathroom, and so on. Showing up every day is more important than being involved every day. Tests are mostly memorization, so cramming is fine. No need to learn the material. The only problems we're solving are problems that already have answers, and your teachers have those answers. Avoid standing out, fear and boredom, and wasted time above all else. Look good on paper, on report cards, in the yearbook, on college applications, on a resume, and so on. Raise your hand once every few weeks. Otherwise, avoid saying anything or doing anything that might embarrass you. Speaking of embarrassing yourself, don't challenge teachers to wipe the floor with you. The only way to get 100% is by not making any mistakes. I think this is really poignant, and I think a lot of these beliefs get instilled through this same ET system that we just talked about, because the first time you try you cross any of these lines, uh, you get the slap on the wrist and you learn really fast that, wow, I, uh, that wasn't good. I shouldn't have expressed myself in that way. I shouldn't have done that. Wow, whoops, bad me. Um, and you stop. I, this book is, uh, you know, is mainly for people who are kind of looking back uh, and trying to undo the damage that's been done by this school system. But if you are a parent and you have a teenager who's currently in the midst of this, I wonder if there's anything you do to counteract it a little bit, you know, in the process, or if there's anything that, you know, you could do to kind of empower your teenager a little bit to say, hey, even though you're in this shitty situation where these are the messages you're getting here on page 64, um, you know, you're more than that. And you don't, you don't have to uh, buy into that ET phenomenon. 
yeah, there are definitely things that you can do. I think one, as a parent, you can consider the kind of school system that your kids are in. And um, if you have the privilege of considering which school system your kids can attend, and you can um, do your due diligence as a parent and figure out what schools are teaching what in what way, then there are so many different kinds of um, education now than there used to be, even just in our parents' generation or you know theirs, et cetera. So that's number one, but that's a privileged-based option because lots of people have no choice or financially need their kids to go to whatever local public school they're at, and there might not be the same creative approaches to problem-solving education as there are in other locations. That said, there are also excellent teachers and administrators in all kinds of public education and in private education. So there's no like one magic bullet to solve this in a particular place you have your kids go to school or even homeschooling. What would be better, the best thing I think, is to find ways to, to introduce to your kids while they're in high school and junior high even that they will need to challenge the norms in order to succeed at work. They will need to think creatively and want to solve problems in order to succeed in the workplace. It might not be the kind of system that they're, they're in right now in high school where they need to pass the standardized tests. They need to approach challenging a teacher in a sensitive and polite way. They, they're going to have to think differently and learn how to navigate the social systems that are in a high school and college. But if you can start introducing the idea and talking about what it's like in the workplace, or even better, getting your, letting your kids go to outside of high school and college events, curriculum, organizations that are just run differently than traditional factory school, as I call it, they will start getting the experience of thinking for themselves earlier. I think that you can also get that experience as a young intern, assuming that the company that, you know, this teenager is interning at is not taking advantage of them and, you know, having them work for free, which many companies do. And that's, in my opinion, cruel and unusual because young people need work experience and they also need cash early to pay for school and to pay for higher education. And so if there's a way to get a paid internship somewhere, but you're in a work environment, you're being challenged, you're having to think differently, solve problems, then that would be a great way to like free their mind earlier. And I think, again, just fostering an environment where your, your kids can talk to you and ask questions and get real feedback and advice from you and not just be told because this is the way that it is. Um, the more you treat your children like adults younger, the better at critical thinking they will be, which will benefit them in the workplace. And that's the main thing that they need to understand is that the workplace is just truly, truly different than school. And there are jobs, many jobs that are still very cut and dry where you just follow directions and you get a paycheck and there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. But many, many, many of the new jobs that exist. Yeah, right. Especially the modern workplace. It's mm -hmm. becoming more and more that way. More and more companies are run by millennials and young people yeah. uh it, we need to and companies need to keep up and they need to challenge the status quo and things change so fast now that thinking outside the box is valued and recognized yes. yeah i think you know being aware of what kind of school your kid is in and yeah if you can get them into a school where they are rewarded for thinking outside the box and challenging the status quo then that's awesome but if you recognize that they're not in that situation then trying to find some situations outside of school where they can at least 
get that a little bit or yeah. even if it's in the home and you can just reward them for, you know, challenging you a little bit. We're here with Alexis Rockley talking about how to help your teenager find their fuck yeah. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. You can't iron out your life the way that we're taught that we should. You just can't. Even the people that are like decrying social media right now on the internet that are like, it's dangerous, it's ruining our kids' brains. We're also missing the fact that the same people writing these articles are writing those articles as clickbait also. And again, by the way, like I should add this, none of that's conscious. Like kids rebelling against their parents as teenagers is not a conscious decision. It's completely subconscious. It's subtext. It's about becoming an adult. It's normal. But when you are blown away because they change something subtle or hanging out with new people, they read that as failure, that you're no longer a, a person that they can trust to, to be vulnerable with, and that um, this is a really good way to piss you off. And so all of those things will mean something new the next time that they want to change their hair or, you know, go do stuff with new friends or join some other organization. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.